Let's see, it's up. Good. That's what we're going to study tonight. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18. You can turn there in your Bibles. I'm going to have some of it up on the screen, but I think it'll be helpful if it's open for you. Um, it's been a little, a little bit. We took a break from Matthew for basically the month of December because we did some Christmas things. And so we're getting, we're, we're really just picking up right where we left off. But it's been a while. So one of the, my goals is to do a little bit of review so that we remember where this is falling into the whole movement that Matthew's been leading us through. But there's another thing I think that we need to do before I get to that, and that is to kind of discuss a term. One of the major topics, or the major topic of the passage we're going to look at tonight is the topic of church discipline. And so that, I believe, is a topic that some of you may have never heard of before. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, some may think, I don't like that topic. And so I, I think there needs to be a little bit of work done before we dive into say, what is it that we're even going to be talking about tonight to make sure we're on the same page. I, I, because December was the way it was and we had different things, I was able to spend a lot more time reading and studying. I, I went through several books on this topic. And interestingly, every single book had at least a section, sometimes chapters, on why churches don't talk about or practice church discipline anymore. It used to be common. Every church had it in their, at least in their bylaws, if not a uh, recorded common practice, and many, many churches don't. Um, and I think one possible product of that is that we just have forgotten what we are even talking about. So I want to start here <clears throat> by just pointing to a definition of church discipline My app is messed up. Well, I was going to do the thing where I underlined everything, but it looks like it has kicked me out of that for some reason. So I'll just talk to you about it. This is a definition that I found on, of church discipline, and I'm going to try to walk through it with you. But let me just read it first. Church discipline is one part of the discipleship process. It's the part where we correct sin and point to a better path. In more specific terms and formal terms, church discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. This came from a helpful book, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I want to just walk through some of these parts of this definition to help you. One is the very first thing you say, see is church discipline is one part of the discipleship process. Interestingly, it's one of just two parts. Discipleship, traditionally speaking, is made up of formative discipleship and corrective discipleship. Formative discipleship is where we go to learn how to follow Christ through hearing someone teach. It could be through coming to a sermon, a Sunday night service. It could be a Sunday school class, reading a book. There's times where we sit in the, under somebody's teaching so that we can understand who God is and how that should shape the way we follow him. That's formative teaching. There's another way that we're discipled that's corrective. And what that suggests is that there's sometimes that even though we may have heard what to do, our life doesn't line up with it. Right? And so what needs to happen is that the same people who are with us learning in, in this formative process come along beside us and correct us. It's, imagine 
the Christian life being kind of like math class, right? When nobody shows up to math class and knows how to multiply and divide, their teacher gets up and gives them instruction. This multiplying is like adding two groups, of this, and they go through what multiplying is like. But then what they'll do is they'll go back through the test, and you'll mark up with your red pen, you didn't quite get this one right. You didn't get this one right. Go back and do this again in your homework. Let's practice this so that you can become proficient at your math. Following Jesus is similar. We grow first off by formative dis- discipleship and then corrective. All of us are discipled in this process. He goes on and says the church discipline is specifically the corrective part. It points us to correct our sins and points us to a better path. And then he says in more specific and formal terms, it's terms church discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper. I think, uh, and, and I'll explain this more as we go through, I think there's, there's a problem with this definition here. It's not purely the act of removing, it's the process that ends in removing. What you're going to see is when we get to Matthew 18, Jesus is going to walk us through what church discipline looks like, and he's going to say it doesn't have to end in someone being removed. There's going to be steps that will lead up before that, and hopefully that'll never happen. But the process that Jesus is going to lead us through is going to, if it's not successful in our first three steps, the fourth step is going to end in removing someone from membership and participation in the Lord's table. And what we mean by that is we're going to, and we'll go through this more, but we're just going to recognize if we go through this whole process of church discipline and there's never been repentance, never a recognition of I have sin that needs to be corrected, then at that point the church is saying we do not believe that the acceptance of you as a, as a member that we originally granted was justified. Let me explain that for a second. When somebody... When somebody joins the church here, try to remember back to when you joined the church or the last time you saw somebody join the church. What happened is they came up to the front, and Pastor Johnny asked him a question. He says, do you confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Lord? He's the son of the living God. And do you promise to follow him all the days of your life? And they will say, yes. Or if it was you, you say, yes, that's what I believe, and that's what I promise to do. And then Pastor Johnny turns to all of us, all of us who are members of Rayford Road, and he says, based on this confession, do you accept them as a member of the body of Christ, a member of Rayford Road, as one of us? And we say, yes, based on this confession, we believe that they are members of God's church, and we want them to join with us. What happens, though, is as we live out our life, sometimes we find out that people's words and people's actions don't match up. And there comes a time when we say that even though you said something, your actions prove or at least seem to suggest that what you said wasn't legitimate. You didn't mean it. And if that's the case, we have to, we have a responsibility to come back and say, where where we did accept your words, now that your actions have disproved them, we need to let you know that your actions and your words aren't lining up. So we remove you from membership and, rem- and ask that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that more, but as we go through and we talk about what church discipline is tonight, I wanted you to have that in your head so that you can be following along and thinking through what we're going to talk about. Uh, now I think it's time for us to just jump into the passage. So let's see if I can get this. Oh, actually, let me do this too. Uh, we're only going to look at Matthew 18. 
And so we're, it really only six verses. But I wanted you to know that this isn't just a six-verse thing in the Bible and then you leave it. Church discipline is all throughout the New Testament. So what we're talking about is a, is a major theme. It's very important. And so I wanted to give you, there's tons of passages that deal with church discipline. Uh, the major, some of the most major ones are the Matthew passage we'll look at tonight. There's another in 1 Corinthians 5 that is a, a major passage there. Um, Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 isn't specifically just church discipline, but broader just discipline. And the Bible just says, the writer of Hebrews says, if you are disciplined by God, it's because he loves you, because a father loves his son when he disciplines his son. And so that we shouldn't look at this as a hateful act or a spiteful act, but one that demonstrates love, because discipline flows from love. Uh, there's passages on here about how to do discipline to leaders and pastors. There's passages about people who actually were in discipline here. There's all sorts of things that we can see about church discipline. But I wanted you to know that this is something the Bible takes really seriously. So we should too. And then I know that this is a new topic for a lot of people. So what I did is threw up some books that you might be interested in. I, I don't, instead of going through all of these now, I think the most helpful thing to do would be to put them on Facebook. And if, you, if you're interested, you're like, I really want to know more about this topic, you can go to uh, Rayford Road's Facebook page, and I'll put it up sometime tonight, and you should be able to get it tomorrow if you're interested in learning more. Let's read the passage together. Matthew 18. I'll start in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he, yeah, but if he uh, doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Again, I assure you, if two, uh, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we approach this topic of church discipline and recognize that it is uh, a hard topic, I pray that you will soften our hearts. Um, help us recognize in our lives where we need correction. Teach us to be the type of people who are happy to receive your discipline. Teach us to be the type of people who love each other enough that we're willing to go through the sometimes awkward steps of correcting sin in each other's lives because we care about each other's relationship with you. I pray that you'll open our eyes to understand this passage and our hearts to receive it. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. I told you that we're going to do some review. So let's go back. This is where you'll need your Bible. I'm not going to have this up on the screen. Matthew 18. If you, if you go back even farther, you may remember that Matthew has been really consisted of kind of two major chunks. The first 12 chapters, there's one commentator that called it the Christ book. It was all about establishing who Jesus is, what it means that he's the Messiah. And then from chapter 
13 to the end, he titled it The Church Book. And it's talking about the implications of what it would mean for us to follow the Christ. And those are really, uh, maybe not quite as hard and fast distinctions. There's some, still some more stuff about who Christ is in the second half. And there's even some stuff about how, what the church should do in the first half. But there has been this turn of attention. And especially in the chapters we've been looking at, Jesus has been establishing who we are if we're following him and in his kingdom. And then he talks about what those implications are for our life. And so where we were last time we met, which was in November, we did the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 18. You'll remember verse 1, the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. Who is the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus uses this question to do really, to really present the whole purpose of the second half of Matthew. To say, I'm going to tell you what it means to follow me, to be one of my followers. I'm going to tell you what it looks like to follow me. So the first thing he does is he tells you what it means. He says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a little child. Right? He, he, they said, who's the greatest? And he said, if you even want to get into heaven, you become like a little child. And he says, in fact, not only is that how you get in, that's how you become great. Because being part of the kingdom of heaven has everything to do with recognizing your own childishness. What he means by that is having this sense of humility, a sense of, I can't do this on my own. The problem that Jesus is addressing all throughout Matthew is this sense of self-righteousness. This idea that I've got this together. And he's constantly correcting that. You're, the major way that you come to Christ is recognizing you don't have it all together, that you are needy, that you stand humble, receiving from God, not offering what you can give him. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be someone who recognizes, I don't have it all together, and I need Jesus, right? Well, there's some implications from that because he starts off in saying everyone in the kingdom of heaven is somebody that recognizes that they're like a little child. But then in verse 6, he moves to not us recognizing we're little children, but how we're going to treat each other if we all recognize we're children. In verse 6, really through 14, that's what he's talking about. How do you treat people who are children, spiritually speaking? And in verses 6 through 9, he says the first thing you need to do is you look out for kids. You don't put kids in a place where they're prone to stumble, they're prone to fall. You create an environment that is safe. Specifically, he's saying you don't want children to be in a place, spiritual children, where they are likely to sin. Then, in verse 10 through 14, he says not only are you looking out for their spiritual safety here, you're accepting the people who have already fallen. Right? You're, expect, you're accepting and welcoming people who are childish. And this really kind of makes sense, especially as... You know, I have Dorothy, who's two. Dorothy is um, klutzy. I guess that's the way to say it. She runs into everything. She, her world is, she does not think about her own safety. Right? So part of my responsibility as a parent is to help childproof my house. Right? So we put those little plastic covers on the electrical outlet so she doesn't stick her fingers in there. We do things to help make sure that Dorothy's not going to kill herself or hurt herself. We're, we're trying to protect her. But the other thing is, 
regardless of all my efforts, Dorothy always finds a way to thwart them. She finds a way to, she seeks out danger, and she tries to put herself in that. And regardless of the fact that she does this over and over and over, I am accepting and welcoming her because I recognize she's a child. Right? I understand that I'm protecting children, but I'm also welcoming them as children. Right? I'm not saying, Dorothy, you're my child once you grow up. You're my child because you are a child. And so he's saying treat each other that way. Treat each other that way. Treat the people in this church in a way that you don't want to live your life in a way that would cause them to sin. And if you see each other sinning, love and accept and bring them back in. Then he brings in two more passages. The first is what we're studying tonight, 15 through 20. And it seems like he's going back to this thing of not causing children to sin, and he's, tur- he's looking at the other side of the coin. Next week, we're going to look at one on forgiving, and it's the other side of the coin of, of this, what well, we just looked at, verses uh, 10 through 14. But tonight, we're going to look at the other side of this coin of not putting your brother in a place where he might sin. And this one is recognizing that when someone does sin, they need to be corrected. What we're going to see is that there are um, well, b- before we get into these four steps, let me, just, let me just point out something that I think is, is fairly obvious. It's hard for us to be corrected. But if we are Christians, right, if we are members of the kingdom of heaven, then we should not ever expect that we don't need to be corrected. Right, the qualification that gets me into the kingdom of heaven is saying I'm childish. Right? We sing, I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And that's the qualification that actually gets me into the kingdom. So even though I don't love the topic of church discipline, if I deny that I am childish and need it, then I'm denying the very thing that gets me into the kingdom to begin with. Once we recognize that, once we recognize that we are a community of children trying to raise children, we're trying to help each other, we recognize that part of this is going to be correcting each other. And Jesus says, let me give you a four-step process for how this is going to work. And let's start just in verse 15 again. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is step one of church discipline. There are four big clauses in here. If your brother sins against you is the first one. This is the condition for which you will enter into the process of church discipline. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus says this, though, because in some of the other passages I read, uh, I'm expected to enter into church discipline even if the offense hasn't been done against me. For instance, if I'm in church and I know that there is someone who is having an affair, which is what's going on in 1 Corinthians, it's my responsibility to address it, even if I'm not the one he's married to or she's, you know, like I'm still expected to be involved. But Jesus here is focusing on people who have been sinned against need to be the first ones to initiate it. And it's interesting, and I was wondering why. Why does he, why does he, phrase it this way, and I think the answer is found in the second clause. Because once they sin against you, you go and rebuke him in private. 
And what you're starting to see here is that right from the very beginning of church discipline, Jesus is concerned with protecting the reputation of the offender. Isn't that kind of surprising? Especially in our culture where you don't, there's a, there's a word that you see often called victim blaming. And that we, we should be against the offenders and defending the victims always. But here Jesus says, I want you to defend everybody. Even the person who has offended you, you're worried about protecting them, protecting the reputation. So when they sin against you, before you broadcast this to anybody, you try to deal with this privately to protect their reputation, which is a profound thing, I think, especially in our culture. Then he says something else that's interesting. We're in the, in the third clause, he gives another condition, if he listens to you. And we'll come back and ask what listening to would look like. But if he listens to you, then you have won your brother. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. What does it mean you have won your brother? I think, and this, this is something else that surprised me as I was studying through this. I think that Jesus means this in a kind of evangelistic sense that you have saved your brother. You have prevented your brother from destruction and from hell. That seems strange because my con confrontation in church discipline, I've always thought, isn't what saves somebody. It's Jesus' blood and the cross. But let me read to you from James chapter 5. This is verse 19 and 20. James chapter 5, he says this, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the errors of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. There's a few things theologically that we need to wrestle with here. One is my tendency, and I'm sure that some of us share this, to always view salvation as I have been saved and I will be saved, and forget that salvation also includes, and I am being saved, right? Jesus talks about a salvation that happens in all three of those ways. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved, and they always all go together. There's never a time when a person has been saved, and you're not seeing the fruit being worked out in their lives. And so one of the ways that Jesus implements us being saved, our lives being changed, is through church discipline. That means he's using you and me. Let, let me try to illustrate this another way. I still want us to remember that salvation is the work of Jesus alone through faith alone. But I also want us to believe that he uses us in church discipline as a part of the salvation process of people in the church. So how do we work that together? Maybe you've heard the phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Have you heard that phrase before? I, I think that, while I get the point of it, I think that actually you can meaningfully say guns kill people and people kill people. In fact, if I said to you, this man died, how did he die? A gun killed him. You would know what I mean, that a gun was the tool or the agent that caused the death. But who was the agent that acted? The man who pulled the trigger. 
I believe that that is, helps us understand a little bit about how church discipline works. There are people in our church who are walking in a path that will lead them to destruction. Only God can save them. But the tool that he uses is you and me through the process of church discipline. There are people that are walking toward hell and they don't even know it sometimes. And the tool, the agent that he uses, the, like the hammer that hits the nail, are, are you and I, the community of believers in the church. And he says, if you are the tool, then it can be meaningfully said that you have turned your brother away from and saved him from a multitude of sins. Did Jesus save him? Certainly, because he is the one that is wielding the church. He's the one that is using you and I to save people. But that doesn't take away from the true thing that it is our responsibility to be used by Jesus in church discipline. So how does that work? How do we know if a brother has listened to us, if he has been won? And that is simple. He repents. If I come up to somebody and say, you have offended me, I believe that you have sinned, and I'm coming to let you know that this affects your relationship with me and with Christ, and they repent from that sin, then you have won your brother. How do you know if they've repented? Well, there's a few signs of repentance. One is that you agree that sin has occurred and that you're responsible for it. If I'm repentant, I have recognized my sin, and I'm taking ownership of it, responsibility. Another thing I recognize that if I have sinned, that I recognize sin hurts people. And the Bible consistently shows that people who sin and repent want to make restitution. In Sunday school class today, Jonathan brought up uh, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector and who would hurt people by collecting too many taxes. When he meets Jesus, he goes back and pays back all those taxes with interest. Because his desire is not only to admit that he was wrong, but to, however he can, by whatever means possible, through God's grace, he will make restitution for those. And then he will seek to live a life where he's not continuing in that sin anymore. So if he listens to you, confesses, this was a sin, I know that I've hurt people, I'm going to try to make restitution, I'm going to try to make this right, and I am not going to continue walking in this sin anymore then you have won your brother, and church discipline is over. What if that doesn't happen? Step two says, if he won't listen, you take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. The condition that leads us to the second step of church discipline is the first step was unsuccessful. You've gone privately to your brother. He's offended you. He's sinned against you. And you've mentioned it to him, and there was no repentance. There was no recognition of sin. There was no efforts to restitution. There was no efforts to stop this process of pain. And so what you need to do is this: take one or two more with you. And Jesus explains why by quoting Deuteronomy 19. He says, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Deuteronomy is referencing the way trials would happen in the ancient Jewish culture. If someone accused someone of a crime, that, that accusation wouldn't stand in court unless there was some corroboration unless there was someone who would come along with them and say, I saw the crime happen. I know 
from experience or eyewitness or somehow I know that this, this testimony of accusation is true, reliable, it's trustworthy. Otherwise, the accusation couldn't go to court. Jesus is saying something similar needs to happen in church discipline. And again, it is, I believe, for the protection of the one being accused. Right? What we have to recognize here is that we are children accusing children. Right? Someone has offended me, and therefore I'm accusing them. But I also have to recognize that there's a good chance that part of what's happening here is my own sinful desires, my own sinful ideas. I may be accusing them of sin, of something that isn't sin. Or I may be perpetuating a cold action or a cold response because of my continual cruelty or meanness. And so I need to sometimes bring in a second or third party so that they can come in and confirm your perceptions of wrongdoing are legitimate and this is something we need to move forward with. It's a sort of accountability for us as accusers. This, this protects people. So this could protect John. For, I just, this is just off the top of my head. Someone says, I think John's a sinner because he sings songs that were written before 1970, after 1975. And he comes up to John, why do you sing new songs? We should only sing old songs. And John says, well, I, didn't, I don't believe that's a sin. And so you on your own, you can't just continue this part of kicking John out of the church. You need to go to a brother and say, I believe John's wrong. Do you agree? And what we hope is that as you start talking to people, you realize, wait a second, there's n- all these people who've read the Bible realize there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't sing songs written after 1975. I have to drop my case. And then John's off. And we don't have to kick you out. <laughs> We're protecting John by saying you need to have some people who understand the issue and can come along and corroborate what your accusation is. Interestingly here, uh, Jesus does not say who those one or two more people need to be. Traditionally, those have been uh, pastors or leaders of the church. Jesus doesn't say that necessarily is who it has to be. Uh, I do think common sense will tell us that we need to pick people who are trustworthy in the eyes of the person being accused. Right? We need to pick people who the person being accused knows that they know me and love me. Because that opens their heart to receiving the message. If you are, Eddie, if you are accusing me, I I, I believe Tonda knows me and loves me, but it might not be wise to bring your wife because I believe, well, they're ganging up on me right here. But if you bring somebody that's a neutral party that has talked to me that I believe knows me and loves me, it opens me up to recognizing this is not just one man's vendetta against me. This is two people who have rationally processed this, and it corroborates, it builds strength into their accusation. And so the, pro- the purpose here is that we are making sure that the accusations we're bringing are substantial, they're legitimate, and that they are shared by more than just me and my hurt feelings. Hopefully, when we do that, this person says, well, thank you so much. Now that you have brought a second person who was able to reason with me and I knew they loved me, that's opened my mind to understand what's going on, and you have won your brother, the fact was established, and you're done with church discipline. But not always. If that doesn't happen, we move to the third step. This is the beginning of Matthew 18, 17. If the person pays no attention still, you tell the church. 
And it's not until this third part of the process that we have dropped the privacy act. Right? At this point, this sin has become public. At this point, this isn't just an issue that's affecting you and one person. If there is continued unrepentant sin, it is the job of the body of Christ to step in and intervene and let you know, as a body, we are begging you to stop, to repent, to turn. I know different churches practice this how to make something public differently. I will tell you some experiences that I've had. Now, just to, to give you an idea of how this might be practiced, when I was in North Carolina, I was at a, a church for about seven or eight years, and we had maybe five or so issues that had, were made public, which I consider kind of a lot. Um, most of those were because a husband was leaving his wife, or a wife leaving her husband. Um, and so at this point, what would happen is there would be personal confrontation and then usually a small group. We had a small group structure that was like a Sunday school. It'd be like their Sunday school teachers and the wife or husband came and talked. And when none of that worked, the pastor would call a special business meeting. And the reason he would call a special meeting is because that would give anyone who was a visitor or a guest a chance to leave. And this would just be public to the church, to the body of the people who are committed to each other. And he would make the sin public. He wouldn't always share every detail, but enough that we would know what was going on and we would pray. And we would, our, the church that we were at in North Carolina, I think a great thing they did is they would say, for the next so many months, and that would depend on the situation, and typically it would be three to six months. Uh, if there was, a, there was a case where somebody was going to go get married like within two days, and they said within the next two days we're going to do this. But typically we gave time and patience. We said for the next three to six months, this body is going to pray diligently together, fasting and prayer, and we are going to corporately agree, as many of us know and have a relationship with this person, are going to beg them. Tell them we love you. We want you to be right with the church, and we want you to come back, and, and we are going to be an all-in effort to save this person's soul, to win them, to cover this multitude of sins. I, the, the really neat thing is that in my memory of those seven or eight years, of those five times, I only remember one that did not end in repentance. Right, that, it's pretty astonishing how many people had left their spouses hard-heartedly denying the person, the spouse who said, please come back, hard-heartedly denying the two or three that came, pastors and elders. And, and then when the church committed to pray, that time period of prayer and fasting for this soul, God worked in it and changed their lives. I think that God wants us as a church to be willing to come together like that for the people in our church that we love and want to be right with God. If that does not happen, at the end of whatever this length of time that the church has agreed on, then we move to the fourth step. If that person does not pay attention, even to the church, to our collective prayers and begging for repentance, if they still will not pay attention, 
then Jesus says, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Tax collector is just a, a way of illustrating an unbeliever, someone who is against you and not with you. Jesus is saying, if there is continual, continual, continual unwillingness to repent and confess and restore these relationships, then the evidence is that the confession that was made was not legitimate. And at that point, you need to quit pretending it is. It might seem harsh. To kick someone out of the church. The word that the church has traditionally used is excommunicate. To say, we don't have communion together. We are not, you're not in communion with us as a body, and you're not in, you do not appear to be in communion with Christ your Lord, our Lord. And therefore, you are no longer considered a member of this church and no longer welcome at the communion table. But it, Though it may seem harsh, I think that if you understand the motivation behind it, it makes sense. 1 John chapter 2, 3 and 4 says, This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, come to know God through Christ Jesus, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. When John says this person is a liar, this doesn't mean, I don't think necessarily, that they're only lying to us. I wonder how many people are lying to themselves. I wonder how many people in our church who are members of Rayford Road continue in sin and think, but I'm okay with God because I'm a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. Right? I'm okay with God. I've continued in sin, but I'm okay with God because I'm a member at Rayford Road, and everybody knows me, and apparently they don't have a problem with it, so God must not either. And we've become the tool that they use to enable their continued disobedience because we've been unwilling to stand up and say, a follower of God does not act this way. A follower of God does not continually say, I know him, but refuse to keep his commandments. The first Corinthians passage uh, is a stunning passage where this guy is having a, a kind of a crazy affair. And Paul says, you guys, to your shame, have just swept it under the rug. He says, what you need to do the next time you meet, you gather together and you pray for him. And then he uses this phrase, and you deliver his soul to Satan, that it might be saved. Which is a wild, give his soul to Satan that it might be saved. What do you mean? What he means is that quit enabling him to live in self-deceit. Make him like the prodigal son, sleep in the pigsty so that he can remember how great the mercies of his father are. I think it's really hard not to be an enabler. But Jesus is telling us that this is the act of compassion, 
that if we care more about a person's soul, eternal happiness with Christ, than our momentary comfort or discomfort of having to confront a sin, then we will confront it and even say, you do not appear to be who you claim to be. Earlier I said that we're like a group of children, disciplining children. Have you ever heard the phrase that, about the in, inmates running the asylum or the, the children running the preschool? That's what makes church discipline scary. Right? You think, who am I to tell someone that they're a sinner? Who am I to confront someone when I see them in sin? Can a child confront a child? The last three verses of this section, I think, are Jesus' attempt to reassure us that this isn't the preschool kids running the preschool. Let me, let's read it together. Jesus says, I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. I memorized this as a kid, I am in their midst. Jesus is trying to remind us that when we engage in any step of church discipline, he's there with us. This is not us acting as rogue vigilantes. This is us acting as his agents, and he is guiding and working with us. Uh, Clearly, it seems to be referencing the second step. If two agree on any matter, uh, in verse 20, he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, This is when I've gone from this private one-on-one confrontation to where I've asked two or three people to come with me. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, I'm part of that. I'm in that. I'm controlling that. This is an action where you're, you're working on my behalf. I'm not leaving you to yourself, which is incredibly encouraging, incredibly encouraging. I don't think that means that the church will never make mistakes. I think we do. But Jesus says, by and large, when you stop what you're doing and seek me in prayer, come together as a body, not as an individual alone, but as a body to pursue the reconciliation of someone you love who has wandered from the faith, then I am with you. And when we pray for the repentance of people that we love, we can expect God to work. That's, a, that's an awesome, awesome promise. So how does God want children to live with children? He wants us to discipline each other. He wants us to instruct each other, but also to correct each other. And that correction can sometimes be fairly harsh criticism fairly harsh correction, so much so to say that you are a liar because the things you say don't match up with the things you do. I want to ask a couple more questions as we kind of wrap this discussion up. And one I want to ask is help us to think through, how does Rayford Road do church discipline? Right, so different churches kind of work through this process 
a little bit differently. And, um, and, I, and I'll tell you, honestly, since I've been here, I don't think we've ever gotten, to my knowledge, to the third or fourth step. I don't know of anyone whose sin has been made public to everyone, and I don't know of anyone who we have told publicly that you're not a member of this church. Um, and nor do I know of any time that we needed to do that. So I don't think that that's because of our, um, our laziness, right, or our unwillingness to obey. I do know of many times where the first two steps have happened. And I'll be honest, I've been a recipient of them. I've, uh, can't know what stinks about marrying a pastor is all our dirty laundry gets out, but Cannon brought, brought step one to me on Christmas Day. I uh, was a jerk. I was grumpy, and I was cold and silent to her and uh, made her feel unloved. And she came to me and said, Nathaniel, this is not the way a husband should act to his wife. And to my shame, I did not immediately say, I repent. Instead, I said, well, you shouldn't make me cold. And it's, that's, trying to discipline a child is hard. And I was, I was very, very childish. But I also believe that God used her challenging me to get me out of my self-pity. And within maybe hours, <laughs> I was recognizing my own selfishness and sinfulness my own self-pity and unwillingness to entertain her perspective at all because I felt so bad for myself. Um, and so Canon instituted the first layer of church discipline with me. And to God's grace, if I didn't have the job of teaching on church discipline, nobody would have had to know that. <laughs> that would have been all private. Um, had I not, you know, I'm thankful that there was a level of patience and we worked together, but had I continued in uh, coldness, that, that would have continued to hurt her and hurt our marriage, and she would have been not only in her rights to, but the most loving thing she could have done at that point would be to say, I need somebody to help here. It would be unloving for her to herself bottle up and watch our marriage grow cold, my relationship with God grow cold, her relationship with God grow cold, if that sin was not confronted, then what John Owen always said would have been true. If we are not killing sin, sin will be killing us. And so the most loving thing that Canon could have done for me on Christmas was to institute church discipline, step one. I really, truly, truly believe that. Some of us may know of people in this church that need to have that start, that, that process start. Some of you may feel like there are people here that have been saying that they love God and they're a member of Rayford Road and not keeping his commands and they're a liar and you wonder why the church hasn't ever stepped up to do it. And I would point you back to Matthew 18 and says the first person to act is you. Privately, go to this person. 
If you know of someone in sin, don't wait for Pastor Johnny to learn about it. Don't wait for Eddie or me to learn about it. Lovingly go correct this person and try to protect their reputation so that not everybody has to know. I'm getting into my application points. So let me go ahead and just do that. How do we apply a passage like this? I thought of two big categories. One is that we need to recognize that we might need to receive discipline. And two is we might need to enact discipline. What if you're a person who needs to receive discipline? What if someone comes to you, like Cannon came to me, or, or maybe two or three people come to you? What if somebody comes to you and tells you the way you have behaved is childish? It's not becoming of a follower of Christ. This is not what we expect from someone who calls Christ Lord. Let me suggest a few things to you. One is repent quickly. Don't make us tell everybody. Don't drag yourself through it. Two, I think it's okay to be humbled, but don't be humiliated. What I mean by that is we all need to be humbled and reminded that we are like children, that we are prone to wonder, that we err. Every single one of us in this room are still on this side of heaven, which means our flesh is still warring against us, and we deserve and need correction. We become humiliated when we are too embarrassed to receive that correction, too embarrassed to show our face around a body of people who loved us and called us back into accountability and love for Christ and, the, and his body. Humiliation makes us withdraw from the church and the people who love us, where humility says, I totally recognize that I have room to grow. Thank you so much for loving me enough to guide me through this process. Sometimes we start, I did, being humiliated. But that was not the right response. I became defensive, unreceptive, because I was unwilling to admit my own shortcomings. Humility is grateful to recognize I have shortcomings and to recognize there's somebody who loves me enough to not want me to stay there. The second application point I want us to consider is is God calling you to be the agent of church discipline in somebody's life right now? Is there somebody that you know who is living in disobedience and they have gone unchecked under your eyes? There's tons of ways that you may know this. Some of this, if, in marriage, I'd say it happens all the time that you know that you need to confront somebody. But I, a lot of us know people who have claim to be members of Rayford Road for years and haven't been here for years, right? And they, we know that that is in active rebellion against Hebrews that commands us, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. We know that when they call themselves a member and refuse to attend, that they're in rebellion to the clear commands of the Bible. Will you call them on it? Will you tell them, I love you, too much to watch you isolate yourself and pull yourself away from a body of believers who love you and care for you and want to build you. And if they won't receive that, 
Eventually, are you willing to stand up and say, you cannot call yourself a lover of Christ and hate his body? You cannot call yourself a follower of Christ and refuse to be participating in the means that he has to save you. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want anyone to go to hell because we were too afraid to tell them that they didn't really know Christ. This year is our emphasis on evangelism. And I think that we hardly ever consider church discipline as a step of evangelism. But I think Jesus did, and I think Paul did. The church discipline is how we do evangelism with people who claim to be members of the church but aren't showing it to be true. We have to be willing to step up and tell the truth. After our pray, we'll move into a time of response. And so um, let me ask you to make this really personal. Maybe you can do some self-correction today, some self-discipline today. Confess some sins that you have let harbor and fester and sins that are killing you. Confess them. Make them right. Don't wait for somebody to approach you. Approach somebody that you've hurt. Can be a confessor of your sins. Make it personal. Ask yourself, is there someone that I need to approach in love and humility, but also in truth and in a true desire to see them right and growing with God? Let me pray. Dear Lord, There's few topics that I know of that make me and I think many people as nervous as confrontation. And, and clearly you have called us to that in some instances. And so I pray that you will give us hearts of obedience. That you will give us the wisdom to confront our own sin. Give us the compassion and wisdom of how to confront the sins of the people we love. Show us how to speak in wisdom and in love, but not be enablers or people who make it easy to continue in sin. We pray this in your name. Amen.